On this episode, I interview Mike Hoding, a toy maker and owner of Bang Zoom Design. Have you ever thought about how many rejections and failures toy makers go through? But Mike, he believes that if he doesn't have a room full of rejections, he's not trying hard enough. Let's dive in. Failing. 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 I we talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Welcome, Mike. I love that I get to say that I have my first invention consultant, aka toy maker, here today. So before we start, um, can I just ask you, like, can you give some examples of some of your toy inventions that people might have heard of? Okay. I got to build your cred because people don't won't know how awesome you are until they hear this. Okay. Um, so we have uh, probably four to five hundred inventions we've created over a period of about twenty six years. Um, some people think we invented uh, Tickle Me Elmo, but I just want to clear <laughs> that up that we've we've done a lot of Elmos that are feature Elmos, but not Tickle Me Elmo. Okay, so all right. just want to make sure that everyone is clear. We've done, um, our most famous one was Hokey Pokey Elmo, which was 2002, and it also won Toy of the Year that year. That's awesome. Um, and it probably sold more units than the... Than Tickle Me? Than Tickle Me Elmo. And Tickle Me Elmo was, it was a 1996 phenomena on Rosie O'Donnell some people remember yes it was it was an, like a fluke and so they weren't expecting that and so they did, they didn't have as many units prepared for that and it was just that created the Elmo phenomena starting Damn. in 96 and so every year after that they with they uh, Fisher Price was challenged to come up with the next big feature Elmo that could be advertised and the big news for Christmas and so uh, we said let's come up with the next one and so we did uh hokey pokey elmo and then the year after that we did <clears throat> ymca elmo <laughs> which that's was, just silly which was interesting because it was using they had to pay royalties to the village people right um to sesame street and to bang zoom design uh, the inventor that would be us so um, when we pitched the idea as YMCA, we were prepared for the, and we were in the board meeting. There's a lot of marketing and design people at the table, and they're all excited, but we knew that they might be a little nervous about what the song YMCA was about. And so we were prepared with a drawing to say, he's singing E-L-M-O, not YMCA, <laughs> but to the same melody of YMCA. And so that was our way of protecting um, the property because we were afraid that they were going to um, not do it based on the connotations because of the, of the song. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was <laughs> one. Really I, great. Yeah, that was a, an interesting one. And then after that, we did "Shout Elmo," which is based on the Isley Brothers song "Shout." Okay, know, I don't think I know that song. I was thinking of "Shout Shout." A little bit louder it, now. Shout. That's, oh, that one. Okay. Yes, yes, and that was in Animal House. Yes. And so we did. We developed a mechanism that made Elmo appear as if he got really low, and then it used one motor. So the the elegance of the design was we were able to keep the cost down using one motor to make Elmo look like he was really low. And then as he as the motor cycled through the motion, he would reach his hands up to the sky and stand up and look to the sky. And then it was synchronized with the, the whole song to do the whole dance. 
And what was interesting is it was a try me. So you'd go on the shelf and you could press the hand yeah. and it would activate the character and he'd start dancing. And what was interesting is the action was so aggressive that they would fall off the shelf, the actual box and everything. Oh and people were doing videos of it and it was kind of getting viral. Well, that's kind of good. And anytime you can get anything on YouTube, um, this was actually before YouTube was big, but now uh, when you have a toy, you have a hit toy, you do anything you can to get a viral video on, on YouTube, which is now the trend uh, for marketing. Sure. They, they've given up on TV commercials and they know that YouTube is, is how you promote toys okay so so here's a question well, well two things first of all tell us a little bit about how you started where how did your <clears throat> career start did you always know you wanted to be a toy maker um i didn't know that there was such a thing first of all I, but as a kid i was always um, kind of teased by my brothers and my sister i'm one of five kids okay. here in cincinnati and and they teased me because i would always want toys for christmas and said you know when uh, Usually when you get older, you ask for shoes or clothes or things like that. And I asked my, you know, I was always interested in getting toys. Even though I was too old to be playing with toys, I would always <laughs> request it. So I knew something wasn't right there. So I always had a fascination for physics and the kinetics of toys. And so I knew I wanted to be either an engineer, a mechanical engineer, or a designer because I was a kind of a tinkerer. Yeah. I would build things in my garage and I had a shop and I was constantly making things radio controlled airplanes I was involved with I mean I would save every penny I had to buy remote control airplanes and they were very expensive back in the 70s and 80s and so I, then I went to college um, in industrial design at the University of Cincinnati at the DAP program and I started there in 84 85 and when I started design, I got, got I kind of got serious yeah. because I thought, oh, I'm going, I'm, I'm a big boy now. I'm going to college. Um, I, I wasn't thinking toys. I was thinking I was going to be a car designer, work for maybe you know Chrysler or you know Ford or Volkswagen, and maybe go abroad. Sure. So I did. I was. I had the opportunity to have an internship. So UC has the co-op program. So I co-opted at Chrysler. Um, and I had a chance to see what it was like to do cars. But before that, I had several co-ops, and one of the co-ops was with ha um, was with Kenner. No, okay. I'm sorry. Ha Huffy Bicycles. Huffy, okay. Yes. I remember. I had all one. The com so Huffy had Bicycles was out of uh, Dayton, Ohio, and so I had an internship there in 1988, and I was exposed to juvenile products and so I was pretty much surrounded by other designers and marketing people that had an interest for children's toys and juvenile products and and all the bicycles had the licenses and the graphics for like Ninja Turtles and other characters and so I was I thought this is pretty interesting and so in, in uh, 19, they had me design their toy fair showroom and the New York toy fair is in February and it's kind of the big, it's the largest toy show in the States. It's, um, it's right there in Manhattan. And so I designed and set up their showroom there. And I was exposed to the toy industry that way. So I was kind of thrown. That was your first co-op? That would be my second co-op. Your second co-op. Yes. Okay. And then my, um, actually that was my third co-op. Okay. And then my fourth co-op was Chrysler. So I had a chance to experience 
the toy side, and then I had a chance to experience the automotive side, which is what I thought I was going to get into. And I realized that the toy industry was far more fascinating in the fact that it it moved quickly. It was extremely much more creative because they move. It's a fashion industry, and you had a, your turnover for a product had to be done within a year. Whereas in the automotive industry, you were basically just restyling the same thing over and over, over and over. And it got and just from the the six months that I was interning at Chrysler, I, I, that was enough. That's all I needed <laughs> to get my automotive fix. And I said, uh, now after I left there, I th- and I even my boss at uh, Chrysler said that I would be a good car designer if I didn't act like an eleven-year-old. <laughs> Because I would always bring in radio control cars and try to make the place a little bit more interesting. Everyone was kind of, it was a bit sterile there. Yeah. And so I knew that I didn't want to be in that environment. So I wanted, I thought toy industry was perfect for me. Okay. So you're at your C, you're in the DAP program, you've done your, your co-ops, you know, you want to go into toy making. Mm-hmm. At that time, were there businesses, were there companies that you could work for and actually do that? So the, so I got my portfolio together. And I didn't know that there was such a thing as toy inventing. Um, it's a kind of a cottage industry, and I didn't realize that that existed. So I knew that there was Kenner and there's Hasbro and Mattel, all the ma- the major manufacturers. And um, as many people know, <clears throat> if you're from Cincinnati, you, everybody knows that Kenner is was the company that it started here right. in Cincinnati, and is a you know, they, they did the Star Wars toys, and they're very well-known, huge toy company here in Cincinnati. Later, they became Hasbro, but most will remember them as Kenner. And when I interviewed with them, I graduated in 91. When I interviewed with them, um, I I thought I could work here, but I didn't want to work there. I just sat, I interviewed just to get the ball rolling, but mm-hmm. I wanted to leave Cincinnati. I, went, I was thinking, I want to move out, like... Like a lot of students in the DAP program, they're like, they're too big for Cincinnati <laughs> yeah. is yeah. their mentality. They get, they have the chance to co-op all over the world and they're like, Cincinnati's small. So I was determined to move somewhere and I wanted to move to Chicago. And so I started making phone calls. I interviewed at Kenner. Yeah. They didn't have an opportunity at the time, thankfully, because I really didn't want to work there. I just wanted to just experience an, an interview uh, after graduation, and get my to help get my portfolio up to date. So then I ended up um, making some cold calls to Chicago. Just back then, you didn't have the internet, so right. you just like found out about toy. You, I didn't know about these toy companies, but I, I knew of some invention firms there. I'm sorry, some design firms. So basically, a design firm would be a consultant that was hired by you know, let's say a, a sprinkler, lawn sprinkler company, and they need a new lawn sprinkler or appliances. And so they would hire these design firms just to style the product. And you'd do drawings and do the, the engineering. You'd help them with the engineering. But that was a consultant. I wanted to work for a smaller company like a consultant because eventually I thought I would start my own design Firm. consultant. Okay. But I didn't know what it was going to be. I thought maybe it'd be special effects in the movies, maybe move out to California. Because I was sort of fascinated. That was the other thing. I was fascinated by the Industrial Light and Magic and Lucasfilm um, published some of the, the making of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. And I had those books. Those were what got me into industrial design was 
looking at the paging through all the drawings and the model making and everything sure. that it took to make those you know classic movies films yeah and so i thought this is where what i thought i might want to get into so the toy industry is similar to that so that's kind of where i got started i that's what got me into design i thought maybe i was going to become if not a car designer maybe i'd do special effects or who knew anyhow so i made these phone calls to chicago they uh and one of the i set up an interview and then one of the guys i had was on the phone with said there are these companies here in Chicago that just do toy inventing, and that's all they do. They don't do any other products other than toys. And I thought, that sounds interesting. So he gave me a couple contacts, and so I made a phone call to one, and I spoke with this guy for probably 45 minutes, and he told me how the whole thing worked. And mm -hmm. basically, the toy industry, because it's so fast-paced and they got to turn over stuff so quickly and it's fashion-oriented, it's trend-oriented, a lot of these toy companies don't have the resources to come up with the next big idea. And most of the toys you see out there... Um, Aren't created in-house. A lot of the, the most classic ones were done by independent firms um, because they are set up to just be purely creative. And, they and more agile. Right, and they're not bogged down with all the, the issues of manufacturing and distribution and marketing and re dealing with the retailers. So these independent... They can almost fail faster, right? Cause yeah. It, they try over and over and over again and they can be more flexible. Yes, Okay. the smaller companies. And most toy invention companies are not much larger than 10 or 15 people, so... Um, so I, there's several toy companies in Chicago, invention companies, that are all from an original one. They're all broke on. They all split off from an original one called Marvin Glass and Associates, and that, that start, started in Chicago. And this company created Operation Mousetrap, Toss Across, Light Bright, Wow, um, Simon. Many yes. many classic games started from this company. Uh, Evil Knievel, the motorcycle, all started from this company out of Chicago. And when they split up in 87 or 88, <clears throat> all these smaller companies came about, and I interviewed with a couple of them. But back to that the first contact with them, which was, like like I said, about a half-hour, 45-minute phone call. I remember hanging up the phone. I was, I was with my at my parents' house, um, and I told my dad, I said, I know what I'm going to be. This is it. It was kind of like one of these, you know, aha moments, like that one phone call. Yeah. So I interviewed up there. I got the job and I started doing this. I'm like, this is amazing. Like here you do. You come up with these ideas, just brainstorm all day. And if you're fortunate enough, and it's not easy, if you're fortunate enough to get one of your ideas um, sold and licensed to a manufacturer, they pay you royalties. So if the product does well, the toy does well and so you're the incentive is to come up with an, a great idea and see it and help the company see this thing through to make sure it's the best it could possibly be so you have to not only create it but then you have to market and sell it to a toy company yes. correct to yes. a kenner to a hasbro or right. whatever and, okay fisher part, price yes and part of that sales pitch can start from a sketch there, there's been ideas that have been known to have been, have been sold through a sketch on a napkin, which is extremely rare. You know, and then the next level is a really nice drawing. The next level from there, accompanying a nice drawing, is a, a decent prototype. But the best is to have 
a really refined, thought-out prototype that works and performs and does everything that you claim to, and it meets the cost parameters and the safety parameters. And it, that takes months of development. We don't, tr- you know, we we aim for that, but we don't do that because it takes so much time. And if we develop a prototype that takes so much work and time. And a company says we're not interested. Right. You've you spent. You've wasted. Yeah, and the company doesn't pay us to do that development. That's all on our bill, our own. Okay, so can you explain to listeners how, <laughs> when I was thinking about your business, you you have to be you have to have super creative minds, but you also need to have somebody that runs the business side of it. And I'm sure that there have been toy companies in the past that have failed or inventors in the past Mm -hmm. that have failed or consultants because they didn't have that balance. So tell me about how you set up the business and how you guys operate. Um, So we're eight people in our office. And the most important, it's a balance like in any design, any product, consumer product business, it's a balance between good product and good marketing and sales and marketing. Because I've always said an amazing product is a piece of fine art until until you decide that you want to make money from it and then you have to uh, get it out there for the public. So even even fine artists are, have to be good marketing people too yeah. because if it's not, it's just something that sits under in your closet. On the shelf and collects dust. Correct. We have lots of that. We have <laughs> many, many prototypes that are collecting dust because... It, they haven't found the right home or we haven't found the right angle to sell it to a company. So we have to convince the manufacturer that our idea is going to is going to be the one. So Mike, here's a question for <clears throat> for you. So when you create a toy, it's an, your idea. It's almost like your child, like you're birthing this idea and you have to sell it, you have to get people on board around it and then it's rejected. How do you manage that? How do you know when to keep pushing and how do you know when to let go of it? Um, so that happens quite a bit. Um, and part of the rejection is was something that over time, you it, it still hurts and you still question yourself. Um, because as, as, as we've been doing this for over 25 years and you would think that you know, eventually we realizing that we might know better than them. And and at the very beginning, when we first started, when they rejected it, we just figured, well, they're the experts. We must not have this right. You know, we don't have, we, we're doing something wrong. They're, they're smarter than us because they've been doing it for, for many years and we're right. just new at this. So um, the... And so then we'll put it up. It's funny, like when the item is done and it looks beautiful and you've spent all this time developing it and you believe in it and the paint is fresh paint and it's and it, it performs great and you pre- present it and it goes over like it, with a whimper <laughs> in the presentation and they're rejecting it. It's a bit deflating, mm-hmm. of course. And it goes out. Uh, then there's times where, the, the, uh, you know, it's so deflating and you feel like well, was, I was just totally missing this, and it ends up in our archive, yeah. which we have a closet in our office. It's like, it's it's scary. You know, you walk through there, <laughs> and these are the, the misfit toys, oh, like yeah. in Rudolph. Yes, and it's like your toy cemetery. Yeah, we call it the land of misfit toys, but we know 
because what has happened is later, maybe a couple years later, you, you go back to this toy that was once your baby and it looked beautiful and it was shiny and it's now it's all dust collected and it's maybe sitting on the floor in the archive room and you go back up to it and you say, you know what, I'm going to try this one again. And then you present it to another client, maybe another year later, maybe two years later, and they love it. Yeah. And so we found that after that's happened enough times, you realize there's no such thing. You know, there's always an opportunity, even for the an, an idea that once you once believed in, and then you you're shut down, you're rejected, and then later it it is accepted again, and then it gets made, and the market you know embraced it. Mm -hmm. And after that's happened a couple times, you developed you developed confidence. this confidence that. This thing. So when it happens, though, like when the rejection is happening, and I know you you also teach, you'll go and speak at like UC and stuff like that at classes. But I mean, what would you say to that young toy maker around how do you manage that rejection? How did you get through it? Yeah, you have to <laughs> healthily get over, other than a bottle of booze. Right, and you have to get over the hump because because if we didn't get over that hump and realize that it will work. Um, there's, you know, this might not have happened, and there, you know, we might not have progressed and realized that there is an opportunity. Um, you just, and I think design, the, you know, what we studied in design class was a lot of rejection, and this is, and I learned that in the in the five years going through the program is when you put something on the wall, and you'd have it was a critique, and you had a lot of your classmates and professors criticize it. Um, you learn that you have to be resilient and just do the next one do the next one and 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 actually i've developed a, a way of thinking that if i don't have a lot a room full of rejections i'm not trying hard enough so mm -hmm. and i guess that was thomas edison's famous quote is he tried like 4000 different materials for the filament of the light bulb and they asked him and say isn't this demoralizing and he goes no i just know now know this is one other item that won't work yeah and yeah and do you even can you give us an example of a toy that um got rejected and then came back and and it worked oh gosh i really want to know one i think um there was there was an item god there was well i actually i did i have a, i brought an item in that um was one of my favorites because it went through that process and I brought it, I developed this um, radio controlled motorcycle back in 98. And this is on our picture that'll be on social media yes. so you can, everybody can see it. Yes. And so it was an item that at the time, the it, I, I've always wanted a radio controlled motorcycle. You know, as, as a kid growing up, I had the Evil Knievel, which is like 1975 classic. Um, it was very popular and I had one. I loved it. <clears throat> and as I got older, I thought it wouldn't be great if I could control that by remote control. And radio control was starting to become a popular trend in the 90s. And because the cost was coming down, the batteries were getting um, more powerful and the motors were getting better. And so they were, it was popular in the 90s. So I was developing a radio control motorcycle and we, we took it to a company and they and I got a patent on it. Yeah. And the and the company was ready to do it. And then they got cold feet 
because there were two other motorcycles that came out right before this one. I was a little bit late, Ugh. and there's, and this happens. There, you know, the parallel development they call it in our industry is it happens, and you know, you're thinking you're doing something. And the other inventors are thinking they're doing something that's new, and the, and the manufacturers are doing. The, they're all drinking the same stuff. Sure. Right? And mm-hmm. so, these other motorcycles came out before, like six months before ours was supposed to launch, or a year before, and they didn't sell well. And the reason why they didn't perform, they didn't, they didn't work right. They fell over. When they fell over, you had to walk all the way out there pick it up. There's so right. many design flaws with these and it got to the point that they had the shelves were full of of closeouts no one was buying them because someone would buy them and and it didn't work and they'd return Return it it. and there was you know they weren't communicating to the other kids hey this is a great toy it was just like this is a horrible toy right so the retailers and the manufacturers immediately started to, to think negatively about radio control motorcycles, and they get this group think that radio control motorcycles don't sell, and it had nothing, nothing to do... Nothing to do with the fact that they didn't work. Right. And so my first item um, was then dropped, and I was and I spent all this money patenting it, and we spent all... You know, and it got dropped, and it seemed like motorcycles were done. And... So I always thought, no, this isn't going to happen. I, I was determined to, to make this work. So I started developing another motorcycle. So my first motorcycle was, it was like a street bike. I love that you were so determined. I was, it was, I was kind of obsessed. And actually, it was one of these things where you're like, am I crazy? Right, right. And like, and I would be waiting. Was your team supporting you and stuff? At this point, it was just two of us. Okay. It was early on, maybe three of us. And, um... I think in our group, if we always support anybody who's passionate, passionate about, about something, it. because if they're not passionate about something, then they're what are they going to be working on? Right. So you always in- encourage somebody who's passionate about so- a, pro- a, t- a product. To keep going. Yeah, because if you're not, what's the alternative? Is to have something maybe you're working on that you're not passionate about, which is you better be. It's better to be going down what seems to be the wrong path passionately yeah okay so because that is like the magic in the bottles you know the lightning in the bottle is when you have passion and it's hard to come by that and so it's like once you feel it you just go with it and this one is i would work weekends i would be up at night thinking about how do i make this thing work better it was it was it was an obsession so then the first the version that I made and patented, it it, it performed okay. I didn't. I, th- I thought it could Hold be on, better. Can I do a timeout? Do you have to patent everything that you create? No. But you wanted to patent that. It, we you patent stuff that you think that um, has longevity. Okay. If you, if it's a trend and it's, and you know, might you feel like it's only riding a trend for a couple years? Yeah. You don't want to waste the money. It's expensive. So okay. okay. This one I felt had some longevity. It could last twenty years. So. The next one, I, so I developed another one. Started, I spent another six months developing a whole new design. It was more of motocross because uh, I thought motocross motorcycles would be more marketable than a street bike because uh, X Games are becoming popular. Mm-hmm. Plus, you could drive it on grass. You can drive it over a rough terrain where the other motorcycles that didn't sell, if you, you hit a little bump in the street, it fell over. Okay. So that was 
they just didn't have the proper stability. So I just kept working on this, kept thinking about it, thinking about the engineering and the physics, how do I make it work? And again, the, re, the, the toy companies are saying, don't waste your time. We're not interested in you know, going down this path. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, and I'm like, no, I'm doing I, it. Right. I, I had already been rejected, but I got, I got back up on there. And so I developed this a, a new uh, design. And it's called? It, it was called the Extreme Cycle by okay. uh, Tyco Toys. Okay. And it incorporated a, um, a gyroscope in one of the wheels, like the rear wheel of the motorcycle. I have no idea what that means. And a gyroscope okay. atop, like everybody knows what a top is. Yes. When you spin a top, the faster the top spins, the more stable. And it's, yes. it's magic. It stands on one <gasps> point. So if you take a top and you you can turn it sideways, just like a wheel of a car, and the faster it spins, the um, the principle. How like, did you think of that? Well, I borrowed a little bit. See, everything we borrow a little bit from this and that. And the evil Knievel that I had as a kid has a gyroscope in it. It has a little flywheel inside it too, and that's what gave evil Knievel the stability. So I was, I took so the same principle. And, and put it into one of the wheels of the motorcycle. And so have you made the most money from that? Um, I would say not. Okay. Pro- we have other items. that. Can you made- say the item that you made the most money on? Um, it Just- might be the Tantrum. It's called the Turbo Tantrum. It's a radio control car that came out in 96, and it's still out there. And you'll see it at kiosks. You'll see it everywhere. Where it's not called that name. It's under what do you a different mean at name. Kiosks. If you go to if you go to uh, like Kenwood Mall yeah. during the holidays, and you'll see those little stands. Oh in the yeah, middle, yeah, yeah. There's little kiosks. You're right. Sure. And in a mall. they'll have random toys on there, and you'll see a radio control car that has a front spinning axle. The axle spins like a propeller of a like on a plane. The whole front axle rotates. Um, and it does tumbling. It goes up on its top and its side. You'll see, they're everywhere. They've sold. Are, are you like in the um, Toy Hall of Fame? Is there such a thing? There is a Toy Hall of Fame. We're not in it yet. Yet. Love this. Yes. You're going to be We're in gonna it. We're going to be in it. Mike, that was perfect ending to the show. Thank you so much for being here. I know how busy you are, and I know you're leaving to go out of town, New York and L.A. for the toy shows. So I really, really appreciate it. It, it was my pleasure to be here. And... I can just say, buy lots of toys this Christmas. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, Anna Bolke, our producer, and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound. If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. On the next episode, I interview Nora Fink, owner of Nora Fink Personal Styling. Listen and learn how Nora uses her passion and energy to style her clients to look and feel their best. And she's very emphatic about using your own money to start a business.